0: Why don't we pause for a minute and begin with prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray your mercy upon us as we consider your word. Um, Speak to hearts that in many cases have grown old and hard with habits of sin. Set us free, we pray, to hear your word, to be made new in your word, to know what it is that we are alive to God, Um, to go out the door rejoicing. Put our feet in the way of following you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, with Easter coming up, we're um, considering the resurrection each Sunday as we go along. Last week, we began by putting ourselves there on Easter Sunday morning at the empty tomb, uh, meditating again on what it was that happened on that day. And we extrapolated that to the hope we have for a bodily resurrection in the future. And so... Today, between those two poles, the, the future historical fact of a resurrection and the future hope of a resurrection, um, we want to spend time asking, well, how then do we live in the resurrection? What's it like to live the resurrection in the present condition between those two extremities? This is all about really putting feet on the ground where it matters. Romans chapter 6 um, drops us into the middle of a very long section in Paul's letter to the Roman church. He's writing to a church that doesn't know him personally, uh, hasn't been planted by him, doesn't know quite how he preaches and goes about ministry, and he's sharing with them the gospel as he preaches it. And in the midst of this presentation, he pauses to ask two questions, and we're going to look at the first of those questions today. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, I hope the answer is fairly obvious to any Christian listener. Certainly not. But what does he mean by asking this question? Why is he asking it here? And why then does he feel the need to go on and say a whole lot more than just certainly not? Um, Because the thought he goes on to develop is not about what we should stop doing which is a negative answer to that question, if you like, Um, what follows is really more of a positive answer. What we ought to see rather than what we ought not to see, what the Christian life really is rather than what it isn't. In fact, the question that Paul poses here is not, shall we go on sinning? Um, i'm not really trans uh, i'm not really satisfied with the niv translation of that if any of you use the rsv or the king james version they translate it better um, the niv takes a noun and turns it into a verb whereas those older translations stay with the noun so they translate it this way should we continue in sin now when If we get to Romans 6.15 at some point, we'll hear Paul ask another question. And this time, he will use the verb. He will ask, shall we go on sinning? So to get at this question in verse 1, we need to understand how Paul has been using the noun sin and why it would be important to understand that. Well, if you're familiar with Romans, you might recall that he begins chapters 1 to 3 with an extended treatment on the human condition, explaining the the brokenness in our relationship with God as well as the brokenness in relationship with one another. Although in Paul's thinking, broken is never the word he uses. There's nothing accidental here. Humans have in fact uh, made a willful choice to reject God's rule over them and therefore to reject the lifestyle that ought to follow from that. And Paul sums up that whole complex of brokenness towards God and brokenness towards one another in verse 18 of chapter 1 with two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. So this this supreme expression of ungodliness, the brokenness in our relationship with God, uh, turns out to be idolatry in all its forms. The manufacture of alternatives to giving your reverence and devotion to God as king. And the supreme expression of a rebellious lifestyle of unrighteousness is represented by disorder in human sexuality, which makes a lot of sense if you consider uh, sexuality is perhaps the most intimate, the deepest way that two people can relate to one another. Of course, Paul's not principally interested in sexual sin. Uh, if you follow on in chapter one, he has a long list of unrighteous behaviours, wrongdoings between humans that are emotional and mental as well as physical. But what's interesting for our purposes today is that through this whole section, Romans 1-3, to Paul doesn't once use this noun, sin, or any of its synonyms. <laughs> no, they're not awake. <laughs> Paul, Paul doesn't once use the word noun sin Sin to describe uh, ungodly or unrighteous behaviour. In fact, the noun doesn't appear until he draws his argument to a summary in chapter 3 where he says in in verse 9, we have made the charge that Jew and Gentile alike are all under the power of sin. So in Paul's vocabulary in Romans, the noun sin isn't actually used to describe individual Acts of personal wrongdoing, not in the first instance. The noun sin is used to describe sin as a hostile power, sin as a tyrant, sin as an invading dictator who has enslaved the people of the land and made them prisoners. So, slavery is the language that Paul is using here. And throughout chapter 6, slavery is the metaphor that drives his thinking along. So, it's important to see where he's going with this metaphor. In fact, he concludes in chapter 6 with a verse that I think we all know very well in in, uh, Romans 6.23. He says, The wages of sin is death, but the wages of God is eternal life. Now, does that sound familiar? I hope not. I'm checking to see if you're still awake. Some of you are with me. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We'll come back to the difference in a minute between wages and a gift. But let's first think about what kind of wages did a slave receive? Well, in the Roman world, um, the the very worst kind of slave, the very lowest kind of slavery, which was uh, suffered by those who were convicted criminals, those who were prisoners of war, Uh, The very worst kind of slavery led to a very short and very brutal life. And the only thing that, the only wages that such slaves earned was death. They were physically worked until they had expended all their lives. Now other kinds of slaves, other forms of slavery uh, allowed you to earn your freedom, but not this kind. For these slaves, the only possible exit from slavery was to die. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, which is getting a bit old now, um, that's a good illustration of this. Uh, The chief character, Maximus, who who at the beginning of the movie is a very uh, celebrated and powerful Roman general, falls out of favour when a new emperor takes the reins of the Roman Empire uh, and is quite jealous of him and has him arrested and sold off into slavery. He knows from that point on that there will only be one way out of his dilemma – And that is going to be to die. And in fact, the most poignant moments in that movie are when uh, he dreams of crossing over that threshold into the life to come. Because that's how he will become free. And he spends the whole movie, from our point of view, uh, longing for that day, longing for that release. Well, Paul's point in chapter 5, just before our passage today, Uh, is entirely about that how humanity are slaves in bondage to a ruler named sin who is working his slaves to death so how does humanity get free what's the solution well obviously we deliver some new force some new ruler to come along and set us free Paul poses the question would what about the law of Moses will that do the job God gave Israel a law and that seemed to promise a life of freedom but in fact within this analogy of slavery Paul points out that the law didn't bring any kind of freedom in fact it only strengthened the the sinfulness of human sin and enforced the grip of tyrant sin on human beings it brought them under condemnation but couldn't bring them out and in fact God's gift of the law in some ways was like handing more ammunition to sin's army. At the end of chapter 5 Paul puts it like this the law was brought in so that trespass might increase. Instead now he says God sent a very different power to save us. A power called grace. So he says where sin increased grace increased all the more. So that Just as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Two opposing rulers. Two different kinds of rule. Sin rewarding the hard labour of its slaves with death and grace. A ruler who gives life. So here's the difference then between wages and a gift. Wages are what you deserve. Wages are what your efforts earn for you. But gift comes as a reward that is both undeserved and unearned. The whole currency of grace is gift. And the two are not like each other at all. In fact, we receive the, grace, uh, the gift of grace because of someone else's work on our behalf. So now we can start to answer Paul's question. Should we continue in sin? The question here really is, which master will we serve? And again, the answer ought to be obvious, but it is the very nature of what the Bible calls sin to deceive us sin makes its prisoners both blind and deaf to sin itself. Or to use the language of Romans, our thinking becomes futile and our foolish hearts are darkened. We are like people emerging from the dungeon of sin, barely open to, able to open our eyes in the light of day. We've never seen the sun before. And now we come out to this bright light carrying with us the old habits of slavery, the old patterns of thinking, the old slave ways of knowing how to get about life. Paul's not simply telling us here to stop sinning. That was all that the law could do, you understand. It was less than helpful. In fact, I think it's deadly to simply ask people to change their behaviour The only thing that comes from it is condemnation. Well, Paul's answer to his own question here is twofold. First, he challenges what we know in verses 3 through to 10. And then, second, he challenges us, he changes how we view ourselves, how we see ourselves in verses 11 to 14. Do you not know? He asks in verse 3 that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our baptism, then, is a symbol of our participation in Christ's death. It's not the actual thing, of course. The actual thing happened back there on the cross at Golgotha. But to be baptised into Christ Jesus is to share in that death and so also to share in what follows, in that ground-shaking moment when Jesus emerges from the tomb. We are alive we don't just have a hope for a future life after this physical body dies but we have life as a present reality we're alive now in a way that we weren't before even as we inhabit these present physical bodies living in a world that is yet under sin's rule and so the implications of this are spelled out in verse 4 And again, a different translation helps us a bit more here. The King James sticks to something closer to the text. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. New life in the present presupposes a new walk. That's the Bible word for it. A new active way to live present life of resurrection is feet on the ground. So that's Paul's first thing that he's saying, "If you've been a slave to sin, you now need to know that in Christ, you've come to life." The second thing we need to know, in verses six to, tell, uh, six to 10, tells us how this is so, how this comes about. How does a slave in our situation get free? Well, by dying. That is the only way out. You have to die. You can't just run away and abscond. Your your slave collar, the brands on your skin, will give you away. You'll be recaptured every time and returned back to your master and your condition will be worse than what it was before. You won't be free until you die. But Christ's death is the end of our slavery to sin because we died with him for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin now if we die with Christ then we believe we'll also live with him for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead he cannot die again Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The cross of Jesus is the end of sin's rule because master sin has done all that he can do. He's killed the very son of God. He can't do more than that. And he can only do it once now if jesus had stayed dead as many want to say he did then the story ends and in fact the story ends for us too we have nothing more to do than die ourselves one day but we have the resurrection of jesus not simply as a reversal of death a resuscitation back to life but as the death of death itself He has broken the very power of death to kill us. It's like putting water inside a glass bottle and freezing it. What happens? The the ice expands, the glass explodes, and that's the end of the bottle. There's no question any longer of putting water back in that bottle. Well, Christ has broken we slaves out of prison by shattering the prison open sin no longer has mastery over us it no longer has a hold over us because the threat of death has been removed but more importantly though we now have a new master a better master our proper and true master god himself the master who doesn't pay wages to his slaves but gives his sons a gift And so, a new master presupposes a new kind of service, a new way of serving. So, let's think where we've come. Two things we need to know. In Christ, we have been raised to a new life, and in Christ, our servitude to master sin has come to an end. We've entered service of a worthy master. And so, now Paul says we need to look at ourselves through new eyes. Eyes newly opened from the darkness of the dungeon. Eyes that for the first time, probably, are seeing things by the light of day. And it takes a while for eyes like that to adjust to the power of this new light. Verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves, reckon yourselves, consider yourselves, think of yourselves. Here's the defining reality that the Christian lives by and sees everything else by. Dead to sin, but alive to God. Alive to God is how we now define ourselves. It's the core of our being. Not as something we hope to have one day, but as something we have now in the resurrection of Jesus. It's a cold, hard, sober fact. Every bit as much as the cross and resurrection of Jesus are cold, hard, sober facts carved in wood and stone. On Easter morning, a pandemic of life broke out. We see how that life spreads like a bushfire through the work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Friends, if we are Christians, if, if you have put your trust in Jesus, you've now become infected with life. So then, to answer Paul's question, shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? Well, that's a really a, a nonsensical question because grace can't get any bigger than it already is. Grace is the rule book we now live under. Grace fills everything. Grace governs everything. Grace dictates life for the people in Christ Jesus. But, and this is a big but, because you and I still have an experience of sin. And that might be something that's been troubling at least a few of us as we've gone through this message. Yes, that's all very good, but what about... Well, what about it? Between the poles of Jesus' resurrection and our bodily resurrections in the future is the life we must live now in this present body, in the present conditions of this world. And Paul's very aware of that. He knows the problems that Christians face. That's why he's writing these words to us. He knows that sin continues to exert its power in some measure. He knows that temptations of all sorts continue to assail Christians and have actually upped their ante. They've upped the volume. They've upped their force. Because we live in a world that is not yet made new. In bodies that have not yet been redeemed from death themselves, then it's no surprise to discover that master sin continues to insist on being in charge. But of course he's not. It's a ruse. It's a deception. And the fact of our falling prey to temptation and continuing to commit individual acts of sin is not any kind of proof that we are still subject to condemnation and death. It's not proof that master sin is still in charge. We've got a different and better kind of proof. We have a resurrection that is proof that we are alive and we are free. But it is clear that Paul and all the other apostles expect that we will live differently because of what we know and because of who we now are in Christ. I mean, the call of Jesus in his own ministry was repent and believe the good news. And so Paul goes on in verse 12. Therefore... This morning, while I'm in the habit of criticising the NIV translation, I might as well do it another time. It's still my favourite translation, it's still excellent, Um, but translators always have to make choices uh, about how to translate that thing, and that sometimes means expressing things in the plainest sense of their meaning and kind of dropping a metaphor out. Paul's using a metaphor here with this word instrument. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. That's very, uh, very clinical, very academic. The Greek word here is hopla. You don't need to write that down. Hopla. It's, it's a word that means weapons. Do not offer your, any part of yourself to sin as weapons of wickedness. Uh, in the ancient armies of Greece, hoplites were the foot soldiers that made up the bulk of the army. Hoplites carried a big long spear and a shield. And they weren't professional, uh, full time soldiers like our uh, armies have. They were just ordinary citizens. They were farmers and fishermen, administrators, um, or ordinary tradespeople. And when it was necessary, soldiers. Paul's using the imagery of soldiering. We're not to present arms to the old master, the old ruler. We're to present arms to the new ruler. This is the language of warfare because to live between Christ's resurrection and his coming again is to live in a war zone. It is to live on a war footing. It's necessary to take up arms. It's necessary that we should then have to do a bit of soldiering. In the language and logic of Paul's letter to the Romans, the answer then to human godlessness and unrighteousness, as he portrayed it in, Romans 1 is not try harder or keep the law. That's the way of sin. That is, in fact, the way to death. The answer is given here in terms of Christ's resurrection. A new life, a new freedom through death from the old master to serve a new master, therefore a new way to think of ourselves, alive to God, and so a new way to live which is present arms. So what should we finally say about this daily, ongoing experience of temptation that so often leads us to commit individual acts of sin? Well, two things are in order. The first is that if you experience temptation and sin as a problem, well, take heart. That's actually a good sign a sign that you are in fact alive, a sign that your senses are working properly, that your conscience is functioning as it should. If that's you, then take heart this morning. Paul is leading us through this argument to an amazing spot in Romans 8 where he says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gi- of You do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's where he's been going all this time. It's probably more of a problem for us, though, if our sense of sin has been diminished, if we find ourselves blind and deaf to sin. Um, In a recent article, this month's article of of the Diocese, I can never say this, the Diocesan magazine, The Messenger, A retired Anglican academic wrote this. The Bible, he said, and these are his words, cannot be authoritative in any decisive ethical or social or moral sense. He's defending here the ordination of clergy who are living a homosexual lifestyle on the grounds that there, well, there finally is nothing wrong with it. He says what the Bible has to say on that subject is clearly out of date. They're human words. They're no longer binding. No, the the big principle in his words are that we are free. Freedom is what matters. We are free to live as we please, he says. It's telling that through this argument, he never once uses the word sin. There are, he says, contemporary problems. There are current situations that we have to deal with, but it would appear there is no such thing as sin. Now, I'm sure he must draw the line between good and evil somewhere. I'm not sure where it is, but clearly he says the line's not drawn by the Word of God. And that brings me to my point that the deadliest sins are those we cannot see, those we have become blind and deaf to, the ones we have so accommodated ourselves to, so made our home in. That we simply can't even see where we're living anymore. The things that our culture will justify to us as even necessary and perhaps even good. Again, it's the very nature of what the Bible calls sin to deceive us, to make us blind and deaf to sin. So, it's, our biggest problem is when we begin to fail, uh, when we fail to perceive. The true nature of our greed, our gossip, our envy, our covetousness, our sexual practices, or any of the other individual acts of ungodliness and unrighteousness that our culture has now disguised for us as virtues. That's when we have something to worry about. So we need to be a people then with open eyes. Not so much open to sin, but open to the resurrection open to Jesus, by whom we see all things correctly. It simply won't do for us to come to the Master with a list of demands about how he ought to accommodate himself to my identity, uh, my choices, um, my program, my way of thinking. Because he's given us a new identity. We're to get with his program We're to get with his way of thinking, his way of living. And so that means as people freed from the dungeon of slavery, we're to take off the old clothes, take off the slave rags, and with it the old habits. And the way to kill off the old habits is to daily open our eyes again to the new life we have in the once-for-all resurrection of Jesus on Easter morning. Alive to God is where we are situated. So I want to say if you feel caught by the struggle with old habits, if you feel caught by sinful deeds that belong to the old life, can I then commend to you Psalm 16 as a way to pray? Take it up this week sometime and pray it. You won't find anything in there about sin at all, but it does say a lot about resurrection life it is a way of praying ourselves in the way of being alive to God therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices my body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead nor will you let your faithful ones see decay you make known to me the path of life you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures At your right hands. Peace of the Lord be with you.